One thing that I hear some people mention is the issue of the shepherds and their activities and how they're watching their flocks by night. Does that give us any indication, one way or the other, of Jesus likely being born in December or him definitely not being born in December? Because I've heard people argue both ways about it. I would say it has uh, no relevance whatsoever in terms of <laughs> determining the time of year. And I might start off this episode with that statement. <laughs> it has no relevance whatsoever. <laughs> All right. What and is it about this? The shepherds? Why is that? Why is that not relevant? Is it just because, yeah, they would do that anytime? Yeah, pretty much. Because the thought is that if this was taking place in December, it would be too cold outside for the shepherds to be out and about their business during the night in December. But yeah. of course, we have to remember that Bethlehem is not Bismarck, North Dakota. It's pretty mild temperature in the winter. I think at the average, the average high is going to be like in the high 50s, okay. and the average low is going to be in the low 40s. Mm -hmm. And that's about like weather is here in Fritch, Texas, where, you know, sometimes Christmas is in the 70s. Of course, it's possible that we could just be talking about a mild winter. Mild winters happen there a lot in sure. Bethlehem. Yeah. And there's another factor is sometimes people try to say, well, it snows or rains too much. But uh, one of the anecdotes I cited in my, uh, in my writing on this is from a guy who was known as like the shepherd boy of Galilee. And, and he had mentioned that, you know, it, it's actually the best time to take your flocks out is right after it rains. Because, you know, after the rainy season, this the terrain just returns to its you know, desert setting. Oh, absolutely. But after, it, but after it rains, you know, you get this nice lush grass that the lambs can feed on. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with author and PhD candidate Ross Harriman. Ross and I first met a few years ago at Asbury Theological Seminary when I was nearing the completion of my coursework phase for my doctorate. One of Ross's classmates told us about this guy in his class who always wore the gaudiest University of Texas gear and had written a hundred-page synopsis of how the Lord of the Rings books are different from the Lord of the Rings movies directed by Peter Jackson. As a fan of Lord of the Rings myself, I eventually befriended Ross and found him to be an invaluable source on all things J.R.R. Tolkien. Ross is also extraordinarily well-read on a myriad of topics relating to biblical studies and church history, and a few years ago, his series of posts about the dating of Jesus' birth caught my attention. I was delighted to have Ross join us today to talk about Jesus' birth and to dispel some annoying but persistent myths about Christmas beginning as a pagan holiday. 
If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us and maybe share us with someone you think it might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Ross, thank you, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Folds today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Ross, I've had the good fortune of knowing you for a few years now. We overlapped at uh, Asbury Seminary, but for our audience who, unless they are diehard Tolkien fans and have been scouring the internet to find your write-ups on the differences between the movies and the books, they might not know who you are. <laughs> Help us get to know you a little bit. Where are you in school these days? What are you doing and what are you working on? All right. So um, as a preliminary to all this, I want to mention that my name is Ross Herman, but I go by my authorial name is K.R. And K-R. for your audience who's interested in looking up some of my writings, that's the name they would look for. Okay. Except, uh, well, there's one article that I wrote on First Thessalonians that they ignored my request to make my name K.R. Herman. But anyway, uh, that's also the name I go by on the Substack, where I cover such topics as we will be going over today. And that's also the academia.edu page that I have. That's also my name on there. But anyway, I'm Ross Harriman, and I am from the small town of Fritch, Texas. It's a town of about 2,000 people north of Amarillo. That's about the only town in the Panhandle most people know. And... You know, it is important to note that I'm from Texas because once Kevin found out that I'm from Texas, he decided, you know what? I need to move to Texas. This sounds like a magical place. (laughs) Isn't that right? Didn't have anything to do with job availability or not having to deal with the um, annoying five months of winter in (laughs) Wilmore, Kentucky. (laughs) No, it was, the Texas place sounds pretty cool. K.R. Harriman is from there. It goes by Ross you know, with his friends. <laughs> I think yep. I'll head down that way. I, I, that's the legend, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ross, you and, are uh, in school, right? Yes, I am a PhD candidate. I've actually completed the initial draft of my dissertation, and I'm waiting to hear on you know, who's going to be my examiner for the mm-hmm. defense. The jury's still out on that because the first two options I asked said no. We'll see what happens. But my dissertation is on the worldview, foundations, and and functions of resurrection belief in Daniel 12, 1 Corinthians 15, and Surah 75. So it's sort of a, a cross-scriptural comparison of you know, how resurrection functions in the worldviews that each of these texts is trying to form. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. And you're writing with, so first draft is done, you're writing with, uh, under the direction of uh, Dr. Ben Witherington, is that right? That is correct. And Dr. Keener is my reader. Very cool. Yeah. So my, for my dissertation, the the roles were reversed. I wrote for Dr. Keener and had, uh, and had Witherington as my, uh, as my reader. Well, uh, blessings on all that. I know, uh, I know you and I have talked about that before and we caught up um, in San Antonio last month at uh, the National Professional, Professional Conference for Biblical Studies known as the Society of Biblical Literature. Mm-hmm. Had, um, had a good time getting to see you there. And um, 
I hope that this whole process goes well. Are you expecting to defend sometime in uh, March or so? February or March, hopefully, assuming that works with everyone's schedules. But again, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, good. Well, good. I hope that works out. Um, the week that I defended my dissertation, um, Craig Keener had three defenses that week. So it was like three <laughs> different meetings. But it was also... <laughs> Literally two weeks after everything had shut down after, because of COVID. Right. And so he cranked about Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and mine was on a Tuesday. Um, and so I suspect yours will not be as uh, fraught with anxiety <laughs> because of a pandemic. It might still be fraught with anxiety because they're inherently nerve-wracking. But right. knowing, knowing how you prepare for things, Ross... As I know you're prepared for today, <laughs> I don't think you'll have any problems. So, yeah. Ross, you mentioned your Substack, which is a uh, like a subscription blog kind of service. Is that right? That's correct. I'll you can, of course, just access it regularly. But if you want to you know, receive these directly to your inbox, you can, of course, subscribe there. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, um, I, I know several people out there have uh, Substacks as well. I will definitely put a link to that, um, or uh, we can find some way to get, you know, get that um, get that in front of folks who uh, who are kind enough to to watch the video either on Facebook or YouTube or listen and uh, yeah. on podcast venues. One of the things that you're currently writing about is something that I have actually asked you about years ago when I was putting together a class of uh, Sunday morning Bible class on. Um, on why it is that December 25th got to be the day that we celebrate Jesus's birthday. Mm -hmm. I come from a church tradition that um, has a couple of different responses to it. Um, some folks within uh, Churches of Christ are, are absolutely delighted to, to celebrate Christmas in all the traditional ways, uh, especially there, even at the church buildings, you know, get the Christmas trees and all that stuff. Don't do much with Advent because we're a pretty low church group, but, and the whole Advent season. And when you start talking about lighting candles, people get kind of antsy about that sort of thing. We're <laughs> um, using instruments. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, that is true. But one thing that we have, uh, or, but the other, the other side of that is some people get very antsy and very uh, uncomfortable mm -hmm. about celebrating Christmas. If one of the excuses is, well, we don't know when Jesus was born, and I, I'm not sure if there's some concern about like not wanting to have like Santa Claus in church or stuff like that. That's, I mean, I think that's kind of periphery. But I think some people might use we don't know when Jesus was born as uh, as a way to kind of back off of the Christmas season. That is what I want to talk to you about today, Ross. How did Christmas, how did December 25th come to be associated with the birth of Christ? And is it, is it a pagan holiday? That Christians said, you know, we're going to overtake this pagan holiday and make it about Jesus. Is that what happened? Or what? Yeah. <laughs> You're on the clock. Here we go. 
All right. So, of course, I want to divide this up into two sort of different areas. One is, of course, looking at sort of the historical explanation of this in terms of, you know, how the early church came to this conclusion, because there was a lot of debate and discussion about when Jesus could have been born mm -hmm. in the early church, starting in the second century on through to the you know, fourth, fifth century, where it became more or less the consensus, even to this day, the Eastern church or, or a lot of Eastern traditions do still technically celebrate December 25th as the day Jesus was born, but it's December 25th, according to the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar right. that yeah, okay. all of us you know, tend to use and say more of uh, civil matters. Yeah. And the other side of it is what does the gospel uh, evidence from Matthew and Luke yeah. suggest? And that's something that I'm currently going through on my sub stack. Part eight Saw that today. Yeah. Up on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And part eight will, in fact, be about the major thing that inevitably comes up whenever anyone asks, could Jesus have been born on December 25th? Every person who says no says, well, the shepherds were in the field at night. It couldn't have been December 25th. And I will suggest that no, it very well could have been. All right. I, I will kind of spoil the conclusion of my series in that I do think it is possible that Jesus was born on December 25th, specifically December 25th, 3 BCE, seems like a, as good a date as any. Okay. Granted, the gospel evidence does not suggest any precise date, but December 25th or somewhere, you know, relatively close to that would make sense of a cross-section of a bunch of different uh, evidences from the gospel. All right. And so on, there's that side of it. And of course, I can go into more detail about any specific uh piece of evidence there, but you can also visit my sub stack if you want to know more. Mm. On the early church side of it, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, scholarly dissection about this, and of course, a lot of uh, popular myths that have developed around it. Mm. And just because my I'm wired to address this in the order that I wrote it, I was just going to start from Know, basically the theories down to you know, what the early church actually said and you'll get a lot of uh, popular claims online that there's uh, some sort of pagan backdrop to december 25th that the christians took over usually and it's related to the holiday of saturnalia right yes that is the most common one fact it's so popular that it was on an early episode of the big bang theory. i was going to mention that episode of the yeah. big bang theory yeah they <laughs> they kind of popularized this notion that um that you know saturnalia was the original sort of winter holiday and then it you know i might have gotten taken over by christians yeah what it, it can can i ask you what is it about um what is it about pagan holidays you know are, were there are there known pagan holidays that were celebrated near the end of the year that are is there any likelihood or possibility that yeah, that those could have been a been a consideration well from what i can tell no there's <laughs> just, there is there just there it is that, no 
yeah <laughs> there is evidence that emerges later of like sort of polemical context in which like say this uh this scoliast who you know wrote like a marginal comment for uh jacob barsalibi who was a syriac scholar in the 12th century uh jacob barsalibi had said something about christmas being on december 25th but this guy was still of the belief that no christmas is on january 6th which is you know the traditional date of epiphany mm -hmm. and uh before you know december 25th became more or less the consensus date you know outside the armenian church the the tendency was that a lot of the eastern churches would celebrate christmas on the same day as they celebrated epiphany january 6th okay and that was due to the reference in luke chapter 3 verse 23 that says you know jesus was about 30 years old when he was came to be baptized by john of course that argument ignores the about there but it just takes the 30 years old yeah and so that's they celebrate both the birth and new birth of jesus because that's how they associated you know, baptism with yeah, the right. new birth and yeah so to go back to saturnalia that's of course the most common one and the thing that sheldon didn't tell anybody was that saturnalia was never celebrated on december 25th in fact uh, our major source on saturnalia acrobius tells us when saturnalia was celebrated it was initially celebrated on december 19th and then that was eventually lengthened to a three-day celebration from december 17th to 19th mm -hmm. and at its longest it was a week-long thing from december 17th to festivus december 23rd so but, festivus yes <laughs> <laughs> any seinfeld seinfeld fans out there there yeah. you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah and but that's as far as saturnalia ever extends mm -hmm. is to uh, December 23rd. And uh, the other popular one, and this is one that's particularly popular among scholars, though you see it online sometimes as well, is that they took over a, a celebration of the god Sol Invictus, you know, the unconquerable sun. Yeah. That was instituted by the emperor Aurelian in uh, December 25th, 274. Is it 274? Yes, it was 274. And the, the thing about that is there's never any uh, primary text cited for it. And really? that's for good reason. It's because it doesn't exist. If you look through the works of uh, Aurelius Victor or Eutropius, Zosimus, the Historia Augusta, all the coins and inscriptions we have from Aurelian, there's not a single reference from any of those primary sources about Aurelian dedicating this temple and starting this festival on this given day. And what's remarkable about that is that, and this is another reason why people think that December 25th must have been something dedicated to the sun god, is that December 25th in the old Roman Julian calendar was actually the winter solstice. Oh, okay. And yeah, so the the idea that often comes up is, you no, know, it's when uh, the days get the shortest, and after that, you know, the days start to get longer. You start to get more light in the day, and so it's 
almost like representing the sun's victory, that sort of sure. thing. Yeah. In and a pagan in a pagan mind, as weird as it is, that that does make sense. Yeah. You would mm -hmm. celebrate the sun on the day when the sun will then begin his uh reemergence basically yeah and mm -hmm. yeah and to a pagan mindset that's reasonable yeah but what's fascinating about it is that uh, stephen hyman's i hope i'm saying that name correctly because i was really hoping you're going to say uh, stephen hawking <laughs> no his last name is spelled h-i-j mans okay yeah so i i'm hoping that's correct Steve, if you're watching this, I apologize if I butchered your our, name. Our apologies. <laughs> and join us on the podcast sometime, too. Yes. <laughs> but he did his dissertation on, you know, the uh, the sun cult in, you know, in Rome from, like, the Republic to the Imperial era and yeah. so on. And he never found any clear evidence that the winter solstice or the summer solstice or the equinoxes had festivals dedicated to the sun even though that seems to us like it would be obvious sure. that you would have these uh celebrations on these significant season changing days but no he said uh there's records of august 28th and december 11th i think and another one in august like 9th or 10th something like that it's it's in the uh, wise christmas on december 25th thing that i wrote and uh let's see i think those are the only dates that he came up with for you know festivals to soul to the yeah. sun god and the the evidence that it's built on this association of december 25th with both aurelian and with soul invictus is built on a few pieces of evidence, but there's only like two that are really significant. The, the earliest one we have is the chronography of uh, 354. And it's actually available online if you just search for it. Specifically, if you go to tertullian.org, you can find it in all the different documents that are a part of it. And in part six, I believe it is, there's this calendar that goes through you know, all these different festivals and when they are in the calendar. And on December 25th, it says uh, in, which is short for like Natalis, birth, Invicti, so birth of Invictus. And some people will dishonestly say that it says, you know, Natalis, soul, Invicti, but it does not say soul there. And the question is, who is Invictus? Now, a lot of us who you know pay attention to these sort of things are inclined to think that you know truly must be soul invictus because that's the one we know mm -hmm. but again hymens has noted that a lot of uh, a lot of figures have had invictus attached to their names yeah such as the uh, various emperors have had it as a title jupiter had it as a title mars hercules and you know, soul was of course an important one, but mm -hmm. far from the only one, far from the primary one. Yeah. So that evidence by itself is ambiguous, but it's also in that same document, the chronography, in part 12, we have this deposition of the martyrs, which is a document listing, you know, when these martyrs were born or when they died. I think it's mostly 
died. But uh, it mentions there from the year, and this is a deposition of Mars from year 336, 18 years beforehand. It mentions, you know, this is the day when we celebrate the Natus Christus, the birth of Christ on December 25th. Really? So in any case, our earliest evidence, earliest possible evidence of the association of Sol Invictus with December 25th post dates our you know, earliest evidence, earliest clear evidence, I should say, mm -hmm. that Christians celebrated December 25th. There is earlier evidence that they thought of December 25th as the day when Jesus was born. They just, we don't have a clear record of them celebrating it as such. Yeah. I think one thing that you've maybe unintentionally demonstrated here is that if you're looking for hard and fast evidence that is clear and without the controversy for when the celebration of Jesus's birthday got to be associated with December 26th, and when, on the other hand, some of these pagan holidays might also have been potentially notice all the qualifiers there might also have possibly been associated with December 25th. There's just not hard and fast evidence to find that there is room for ambiguity. And I wonder if that is maybe some of the reason why there is so much discussion about this, not to mention just sort of the general cultural uh, backlash against when Christians start to sort of throw their weight around, you know, culture tends to push back yeah. and, um, Ross, I don't know if you're if you're able to talk about this, but um, say a hundred years ago, or during the times of uh, you know the Enlightenment or something like that, was there any discussion then of Christmas being actually a, a pagan holiday that like were 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 people just a few hundred years ago were they saying the kinds of things that people say today about about the christmas and its cover-up of a pagan holiday or is this a relatively new discussion yes yeah, so uh, you could technically say the roots of it go back to the second piece of evidence that I was going to bring up, and that was uh, Julian the Apostate, you know, the famous uh, Roman emperor that tried to, you know, make paganism the official religion, or, you know, the trying to make paganism great religion. again. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. I was trying <laughs> to find a way to avoid that pun, but, but here we you are. made it anyway. So. <laughs> here we are. So Julian but, the Apostate uh, followed Constantine. Yes. Uh, Again, I have his exact dates in the paper, but uh, it's like the 360s, I think. Mm -hmm. And specifically, this uh, hymn to King Helios was written in uh, the year 362. And he mentions there that, uh, you know, he's trying to reinstitute this uh, celebration to mm -hmm. uh, the sun god on December 25th, the winter solstice. It's also known as eight, eight days before the Kalends of January. That's the way that's referenced in a lot of these sources. Okay. And uh, 
What's interesting there is that he distinguishes Aurelian's celebration from the celebration that he's reinvigorated. Aurelian's festival, by the way, was a quadrennial feast. Uh, it was only celebrated every four years. It wasn't an annual thing like Christmas became to be. So that creates another question of, well, why did Christians make an annual thing based on, or supposedly based on a quadrennial celebration? Yeah. And it seems like it was more, uh, his festival would have been in October rather than in December. But uh, Julian said that his was the original celebration for the sun god, and he's only uh, reviving what the king Numa, the second king of Rome after Romulus, legendary king, by the mm -hmm. way, but uh, what Numa had instituted. So this was his way of saying that you know, our celebration was well before both Aurelians and before these Christians who have taken over our empire and who made us all celebrate this false god as opposed to the, the true god, Helios, mm -hmm. or, you know, along with all the other gods he worshipped. Yeah. But you get the idea. And that's, that's the earliest case, but uh, the discussion as we know it today was shaped in part by our Puritan heritage here in America because the Puritans were of the mindset that the, a lot of this non-biblical stuff that the uh, Catholics had perpetuated, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, high church Protestants like, say, the Lutherans and Anglicans and such, yeah. that these must have been you know, drawn from pagan sources. And yeah, so they were definitely influential in the discussion. Quick, and it's quick also pause on that for just a second. Um, it is interesting to see from a from a low church Protestant perspective like mine and, and like yours too, right? And that's mm -hmm. where your where your background is. It is interesting to see like the more you know about Greco-Roman paganism and how every town has its little patron deity or patron spirit or something along those lines, and they have these little festivals associated with them. And when you look at kind of the development of early Catholicism or if it can even be called Catholicism in the, in like the third and fourth centuries, you know, right. but when you look at kind of how Christianity developed through those time periods, at least superficially, there's a lot of similarities, you know, patron saint versus patron deity, you know, you've got, you know, the patron saint of children or you know or this or that group of people or you know merchants or you know people like that or versus, Bible scholars in the case of jerome what's that jerome he's considered the patron saint of Bible oh scholars. right yeah yeah, yeah. um <laughs> yeah like, yeah a guy who's most most famous for his latin translation of the of the greek new testament mm -hmm. but yeah versus on the other hand you've got you know patron deity of you know this or that activity or you know group of people or something like that so at least superficially the puritans can make an argument that all of these things were just holdovers of paganism and all that so i, I you can keep going but i just i wanted to spell it out briefly for folks to say okay i can see why that might carry some weight true or not yeah, yeah i'm not going to weigh in on but i can see why that would carry some weight Right. And it's also uh, 
course, in that type of context, as well as the earlier one of Julian the Apostate, the sort of interreligious polemics is, you know, very uh, popular source for these kinds of claims. And you see that also in the case of uh, Alexander Hislop, his uh, The Two Babylons, I th think it was called. I've, I've cited it somewhere, but it's, it, it's related to my Easter paper. Mm. But, you know, he was of the same mindset, him being a uh, Scottish Protestant, I believe, trying to make the case of all these different things, being a, a Babylonian source that the uh, Catholics are doing, hence the two Babylons that oh, gotcha, thought yeah. the Roman Catholic Church was the new Babylon. No, Luther certainly a, felt that way. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's been a popular association, especially in light of the Book of Revelation that mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. Yep. And uh, another contribution to this was, you know, especially since Hermann Eusner, again, I hope I'm saying that correctly, mm -hmm. but he's dead, so it's different. He can't correct me. <laughs> he, uh, around the turn of the you know, 19th, 20th centuries, he was the one who really uh, really invigorated this idea that Christmas was originated with this festival of Aurelian. He's the one who really made that link, made that argument. And uh, in fact, Hyman's addresses Eusner in his dissertation. He also wrote a separate article that's available on academia.edu where he talks about uh, you know, Eusner's Christmas, I think, is the title of the article and it's where he goes through those different pieces of evidence that are used for this association and shows why they're not really as strong as Eusner made them out to be. Yeah, I'm writing that down. Uh, Neusner's Christmas. Hmm. Yeah, that's spelled uh, U-S-E-N-E-R. Eusner, got it. Got it. I'll be interested to check that out because this this kind of thing comes up perennially, which is why we're doing mm -hmm. this. But yeah, this kind of thing comes up perennially, and people are curious about like, oh, what what's the deal here? Because then, I mean, like, well-meaning Christians don't want to inadvertently celebrate paganism. Sure. Um, but yeah, Ross, I think to kind of not to not to necessarily move on, but to kind of show us where we are so far there has again it's it's tough to find one solid piece of evidence that shows us when december 25th was the day for christians to celebrate christmas um yeah or the, the, uh, the earliest one at least yeah the earliest one we have is that uh, deposition of the martyrs from the year 336 it's possible they could have celebrated it before that, but we don't have any definite record. Yeah. The, uh, it is interesting that there's a sermon that uh, Gregory Nazianzus did in Constantinople in 386, I believe it was. And he talked about how, you know, we in the East have only been celebrating Christmas on this date for like less than 10 years. And he suggested, and I'm pretty sure this is exaggeration given my own study of the Western Fathers, they said they in the West have been celebrating it this way since the beginning. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's quite right, but it does show that there's an idea that there's a 
the long tradition associated with this celebration in the Western church as opposed to the Eastern church where yeah. the preference was January 6th. Yeah. And by Western there, um, again, for folks who might not be as familiar with the kind of the terminology in early church uh, history, Western there would be more, think more like, you know, the, the Roman influence as opposed to some of the more Greek influence in the East. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Ross, let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and get to get to the good stuff. Let's dig into the Bible a little bit yeah. <laughs> and talk about what is it, are there any clues in the text themselves? We've got uh, nativity stories in Matthew and Luke. Are there any clues there in the text themselves that give us any indications about what time of year you know, things things are on? I've heard I've heard some people make arguments based on, you know, well, this piece of evidence indicates that you know it was this time of year because they were doing this activity and stuff like that. Let's dig into all that. Take it away, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh... Most of the evidence is more suggestive of the year when Jesus was born, okay. but uh, you can piece together some of those to come up with you know, a sort of rough estimates. But the most suggestive would be the reference in Luke, where it, uh, where Luke says something about Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, serving in the temple as part of the priestly order of Abijah. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a lot of discussion there, and this is where there's a lot of incomplete information about, you know, when that could have been, when the priestly order would have served, because we don't have any definite calendars, any sort of documents that say this is definitely when they did. Yeah. The, the best that we have is there's this document from Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where we have this, uh, again, fra fragmentary uh, list of priestly cycles according to their calendar. And, nice. of course, this, this gets into some complexities that I go through in part five of my series, where it's, you know, the differences between the, ca the calendar in Qumran, which was a 364-day year, you know, 52 weeks even, as, and, you know, being a solar calendar, as opposed to the lunar solar calendar that the most Jews use, where you follow the lunar calendar for an average year, but you also every so often insert a 13th month to catch back up mm -hmm. because you know, you're off by 11 days and some change every given year. So you got to insert a month every now to keep up. So you're not celebrating Passover say on the winter solstice that's sort of thing. <laughs> right yeah and what i found and that based on that uh, based on these calendars and how they compare i think it's most likely that we're working with the cycle that completes every six years and you know based on a certain scenario it's possible that uh, we could be looking at the third year in a cycle where you know, Zechariah is serving in a, uh, possibly around the time of the Day of Atonement. This is actually you know, a popular belief in 
early Christian sources that Zechariah was serving in the temple on the Day of Atonement. The error that they make is that they thought he was the high priest and that he had this encounter with the angel in the Holy of Holies. Text doesn't say that. Yeah. But I do think it's possible that they are preserving a sort of historical kernel there, like a tradition that's been passed on that this was the week in which he was serving, because they yeah. would serve a week at a time. And it's important and, to note there, too, like you said, that the text does not give us that indication, right? This is correct. later Christians kind of looking at this and maybe well maybe well-meaning embellishments um you know to, in order to do you know, it, it, what any good preacher would do right at least is to, to draw the significance yeah but that's mm -hmm. but like you said that's not in the text correct yes and i think uh another interesting thing about this you know you talk about the you know trying to find significance in these things is that one of the uh, popular activities in early Christian sources related to these biblical texts, besides, you know, just trying to calculate things, there's a lot of calculating work done in these early sources, mm. is they try to line up uh, events of creation and redemption. So there are several sources that tried to align uh, Jesus's uh, incarnation, you know, his conception, and his death with the day of creation, mm. which a lot a lot of people thought was March 25th, the vernal equinox. And in fact, there's one source called On Solstices and Equinoxes that tries to align this in such a way that uh, John the Baptist was conceived on, let's see, I think it would be the The autumnal equinox. He was conceived on the autumnal equinox and was born in the summer solstice. And Jesus was conceived on the vernal equinox and was born on the winter solstice. This is a source that we don't know the exact date of, but it's yeah. you know perhaps uh, fourth century because this is when a lot of this type of discussion yeah. was happening. And is and, a and it's a Christian source that they're. Yes. that they're digging into this and and like you said it's it was it was appropriate for people of this time to find some sort of um i don't know if balance is the right word um but they found meaning in having things like this happen in significant days and times and seasons yeah i mean it's something of yeah. cosmic significance like the birth of jesus it would only make sense for it to happen on a day of cosmic significance or a day of um, a day of meteorological significance or something like that. Right. It's uh, basically taking cue from the, you know, the verse that states the heavens declare the glory of God. Hmm. And it's applying that to, you know, these, the dates of these significant events. Sure. And, you know, it's also like a strong creation theology that's influencing this, sort of uh, this idea of the development of redemptive history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so they, so potentially then, right, according to this one source of uh, uncertain date, Jesus, you know, to balance out John the Baptist's conception and birth and Jesus's conception and birth, you have uh, Jesus ultimately being born 
on the summer or on the winter solstice, which right. would put us very close to December 25th, right? Well, on the Roman calendar, it would be December 25th. Okay. Yeah. Which is what the calendar remember, they would have been following, right? Yes. Yeah, we have to remember that there are differences in when the Romans celebrated the, uh, or when they uh, marked the solstices and equinoxes and when we do today, hmm. because again, we have the Gregorian calendar and we've also you know, calculated these things differently than they did. And so like the winter solstice is on December 25th. I think the autumnal equinox is like September 24th. And then, you know, it was around that same time for both uh, you know, June, in the case of summer, June 24th, 25th, something like that. And uh, the vernal equinox being March 25th. So yeah, this is, they are trying to make these correlations yeah. there. And I think there, there is basis for thinking that uh, no, Zechariah could have been serving during this time, during the month of Tishri, which would be, you know, in that year would have been like early September to early October. And, you know, if you give a little time for him to go back home and for him and Elizabeth to conceive, you add six months onto that, you get the conception of Jesus, and approximately nine months to that, you get his birth. And that could take you to December 25th or close thereabouts thereabouts yeah 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 and that also aligns with of course i mentioned earlier the thing about jesus being about 30 years old when he's baptized by john and john the baptist is said to start his ministry in the 15th year of tiberius caesar which is somewhere around 28 or 29 ce okay and so if jesus was born say December 25th, 3 CE, which I think is not definitely the date that Jesus was born, but is a reasonable date. Sure. If he was born then, then he would be close to 30 years old if he was baptized, say, in the latter part of the year of 28, and you know, not quite his birthday, but getting close to that, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I hear some people mention is the issue of the shepherds and their activities and how they're watching their flocks by night. Mm -hmm. um, does that does that give us any indication, one way or the other, of Jesus likely being born in December or him definitely not being born in December? Because I've heard people argue both ways about it. I would say it has uh, no relevance whatsoever in terms of <laughs> determining the time of year. And I might start off this episode with that statement. <laughs> it has no relevance whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, and that can be a lead-in because that's going to be my next post on the Substack is about the shepherds of the field. Right. All right. What and is it about this? The shepherds. Why is that? Why is that not relevant? Is it just because? Yeah, they would do that anytime. Yeah, pretty much. Because the thought is that if this was taking place in December, it would be too cold outside for the shepherds to be out and about their business during the night in December. And, and you know, sometimes this is punctuated for extra dramatic emphasis with people showing these pictures of snow in Bethlehem, as if that 
is somehow, you know, a, a real hammer to the nail of the argument, <laughs> even though, you know, I could also show pictures of it snowing here in the Texas panhandle in May. So clearly in May, it's too cold to be outside right. at night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a real freak incident back in uh, 2005, 2006. Again, I say this in the paper, but I don't remember the detail right off. But it was somewhere around that time. That, yeah, it snowed five inches at the beginning of May in the Texas panhandle. But yeah. of course, we have to remember that Bethlehem is not Bismarck, North Dakota. It's pretty mild temperature in the winter. I think the average the average high is going to be like in the high 50s okay. and the average low is going to be in the low 40s. Mm -hmm. And that's about like weather is here in Fritch, Texas, where, you know, sometimes Christmas is in the 70s. And I'm sure in Corpus, it's more like the 90s. But yeah, it's, uh, it's cloudy in 81 down here. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, the another thing we have to remember is that it's possible. Of course, it's possible that we could just be talking about a mild winter. Mild winters happen there a lot in sure. Bethlehem. Yeah. And there's another factor is sometimes people try to say, well, it snows or rains too much. But uh, one of the anecdotes I cited in my, uh, in my writing on this is from a guy who was known as like the shepherd boy of Galilee. And he... And he had mentioned that, you know, it, it's actually the best time to take your flocks out is right after it rains. Because, you know, after the rainy season, this the terrain just returns to its, you know, desert setting. Oh, absolutely. But after it, but after it rains, you know, you get this nice lush grass that the lambs can feed on. Yeah. And another factor we have to remember is that Sometimes the shepherds don't really care what we think is cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my friend uh, John, my friend and fellow PhD candidate John Wright mentioned how when he was serving in the army over in Iraq, mm -hmm. he was he was on night watch on some occasions. And even though he'd be bundled up in these multiple layers just trying to survive the night, he would you know, look out and there are the shepherds just going about their business, acting like nothing's wrong, just doing their thing. Yeah. And my friend, uh, Sam Via Smith, who actually has worked as a translator in Israel, about 55 miles south of Bethlehem, specifically in uh, Beersheba, you know, the mm -hmm. ancient Beersheba, yeah. he, he said the same thing, that you know, he would be bundled up at night in winter but these Bedouin shepherds really didn't seem to care. Yeah, they're just used to it. Yep. And there's, I, I was, uh, I pulled up Luke chapter two here really quickly to see if there's any indication about, you know, what time of night or anything like that. And it just says here that in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. There's, I mean, there's not any indication that I'm aware of in the text unless I'm missing something or misremembering something. I don't think there's any indication here in the text about what time of night we're at. Nope. I mean, nothing. It's if if it is later in the uh, year, 
night, you know, night starts rolling around again with no city lights to, um, you know, to reflect off of clouds or anything. So around five o'clock, mm-hmm. getting pretty dark. Yep. You know, but it's also not bitter cold necessarily. And so it could very easily have been sometime in the evening. Most of the time, I think everybody envisions it sort of in the middle of the night. But I mean, there's, there's just, there's not much in the text to tell us specifically. All right. Now at 2.30 a.m., <laughs> the shepherds are up in the middle of the night. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just not much there. Yeah. So, so the, the shepherds are useless <laughs> other than as messengers to uh, spread the good news. Right. Oh, yes. The she- Very good for that. Shepherds are useless. Um, <laughs> in, is there anything else in the text that gives us any other indication? Uh, we've been, talked about uh, Zachariah's potential cycles. Uh, one thing, too, I wanted to mention, though, before actually before we get into what else there could be. Um, it's interesting when to to look at the evidence of the, the cycles of the priests from Qumran, would they have, I mean, the, the people who lived in the Qumran community on the coast of the Dead Sea, would they have even cared what the temple was doing? Because, correct if I'm wrong, but th- there, there's no love lost between the people in Qumran and the the temple establishment, because the people in Qumran deliberately withdrew to keep themselves pure from the corrupt temple uh, establishment. Mm-hmm. So, would they have even cared? Like, could could we use these? Can we use these records about cycles of priests in the temples, or or would that have not mattered? Walk us through that. Yeah, I think we can use them because uh, on some level they would still be like using the same sort of uh, the same kind of start because you know they didn't their conviction was not that the temple was always corrupted that it had become that's fair yeah so they would be using the sort of the same starting point for when these cycles would go but another thing that's important to remember is that even though there definitely are differences and you know especially because they're using a different calendar those calendars every six years pretty much equal out because if you have uh, you know six years of uh, 364 days a year that equals you know 2,184 days and if you have you know, six years of a lunar calendar plus say and on average you get say two intercalary months to 13 13th months of 30 days yeah you would add those twice to you know six six years times 354 days that equals out to 2184 days just just like the six times 364 so on that basis even though like on any given year there would be some clear differences between say the Qumran calendar and the uh, Judean calendar overall we have a scheme here for how this could have worked out. So we couldn't necessarily you know, start, we couldn't necessarily draw direct correlations sure. from say, this is when Quran says the this priestly order should be serving. 
And so they must have been serving at this given time, mm -hmm. but we can use it as like a basis to build okay. a, a calendar off of. Yeah. It, for, for folks who are kind enough uh, to check out the podcast, there is, there is no shortage of headaches to be found when you're looking at uh, ancient sources like these and trying to determine when things might have happened. I was thankfully able to skirt around some of this issue with my dissertation because I, I used Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people were arguing about, well, you know, based on what calendar you're using, we're not precisely sure, or you, know, you, you might have Caesar crossing the Rubicon at one time of the year or a different time of the year. Now, thankfully, I was able to avoid that because that wasn't especially relevant to what I was doing. Right. But you can, here, here's just a quick example, a very general but a profound example of how different calendars and different datings of when holidays need to be can have extraordinary effect on human history. Mm -hmm. In, I want to say sometime in the fifth or sixth century AD, the, uh, the British Isles were predominantly a a Celtic brand of Christianity and Roman missionaries um, I'm getting some of the dates and stuff wrong but Roman missionaries had made their way up and had been you know converting you know people here and there and it came down to eventually you had like a king and his queen or something along these lines um, you know one of them was celebrating Easter while the other one was still in the season of Lent. Mm -hmm. And so while one is in mourning, you know, the other is, is celebrating. And it, and it got to be kind of potentially awkward, you know, for the two parties to be, you know, for, for, the, for the Celtic Christians to have you know their season bleed over into the Roman Christians, and so what eventually that, that was one deciding factor that led these particular rulers in the British Isles to adopt a Roman Christianity. Fast forward a thousand years, right, and you've got Henry the Eighth dealing mm -hmm. with difficulties of the Roman Church. And how he can't break free from, you know, from a from a wife and stuff like that. So again, like calendars, as weird and as strange and as technical as it is, calendars do sometimes <laughs> have pretty profound effects. That was a moderately yeah. interesting footnote to well, this current discussion. <laughs> uh, Ross, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, it's actually uh, a thing I talk about in my Easter paper that particular sort of debate you're talking about in the British Isles, because that, that was essentially like the last frontier in Western Europe for oh, yeah. the 19-year uh, the cycle that has been used for so long to determine when Easter should be in a given time of the year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was that's something that the Venerable Bee talks about in his History of the English People. That's where you can 
I give you the precise reference if you really want to go read that story for yourself. But uh, again, that's uh, that paper is called Easter. Why are you like this? So there's <laughs> yet another plug for, <laughs> for the stuff I've written on holidays. I love that Easter. Why are you like this? Yep. <laughs> Russ, we might, next year we might need to do, question. <laughs> yeah. Next year we might need to do a Halloween episode. Um, yeah. That would be, that. that'd be interesting. All right. So uh, back to it. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting, um, interesting aside. Uh, back to it, and, and let's kind of, let's uh, kind of narrow down with this as, as we begin to wrap up here. Um, is there anything else in the text that gives us any indication? We've mentioned uh, priestly cycles. We've mentioned how, unfortunately for them, useless the shepherds are at telling us <laughs> what time of year things were. <clears throat> is there any other indication about what might? have uh, what might have happened does the census play any role in any of this yeah so uh, of course i also want to mention that we talked about you know the reference to the 15th year of tiberius that's there right. at the beginning of uh, luke 3 mm -hmm. and also the uh, reference to jesus being about 30 years old in uh, luke 3 23 and i'll come back to that last reference here in okay. a little bit but about the census this is another thing i recently wrote on in my series on, you know, when was Jesus born? And there's been a lot of discussion about this census because you no, know, there's no other clear record of it outside of Luke. Yeah, so outside of the Bible, right? We don't right. have Roman records that say, in this year, at this time, this person took the census. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, and this is an argument I make in that little section of the series is that I think there's reason to think that the census could have happened somewhere between you know, 4 BCE and 2 BCE. Okay. Because this would have been in the latter time of when uh, Augustus is demobilizing his armies and he's, you know, settling them down. He's trying to provide for them, reward them for all the great conquering work they've done for them, how they, how good they've made it look. Yeah. But doing all that, you know, giving them all these lands, providing for them for the rest of their lives, that gets to be pretty expensive. And so when these expenses increase, one of the things the Romans would like to do is take censuses of both their, uh, both their actual imperial territories and their client kingdoms, like, you know, Herod's kingdom was at the time, as, you know, a source of tribute. They, because they want to have an idea if we're going to keep paying for all this, what's the, what's our budget look like? And to get an idea of what the budget looks like, you have to you know, multiply your taxes by, you know, how many people do you have in a given area? And are they paying their fair share of the tax? Uh, right. Fair yeah. share of the protection. <laughs> if you're not, if you're not watching and just listening, I, <laughs> you might not have heard Ross drop some fat air quotes around fair share. Um <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I'm from Tennessee where we had nine and a quarter sales tax. There's no state income tax, but nine and a quarter sales tax. That starts to pinch after a while, but right. um, it's it's nothing like what these poor guys on Galilee had to pay. You know, if they, if you catch a fish, right, you owe the Romans another fish, basically. <laughs> Something yeah. I'm exaggerating, but it, it really did hurt. It really did hurt in that way. Well, you might owe the Romans a fish. You might owe the tax collector an extra fish 
because that's yeah. another thing about the tax collectors like to skim a lot off the top to you know supplement their income yep. and that's that's part of what makes you know jesus's ministry involving the tax collectors so significant is that mm. these you know, people who are despised by society in the way that well let's be honest a lot of people think of the irs as well yeah the way that you know, they were treated by jesus is something really significant but for a, for a good just just a real quick footnote to that for a good historically accurate and you know historically plausible depiction of this kind of thing i recommend people go watch the first season of the Christian TV show called The Chosen. Um, it's in its second season. They finished up second season a while ago. They just, at the time of recording, just recently released a movie edition of Jesus's birth in theaters. And it uh, was doing very well. The guys put this together is an artist he's a storyteller and so there's artistic license taken right you're not going to find book chapter and verse dialogue or action like in some depictions of jesus but they i think that at, you know at the at the risk of self-aggrandizement you know for a guy who has a phd in new testament and who has taken you know some pretty serious classes on New Testament backgrounds and has a decent understanding of the world of the New Testament. Looking at this, I think it does a pretty good job of giving a, a fairly accurate depiction of the kinds of things one might expect were they to live in Galilee, live in Capernaum, and see the kinds of people that Jesus would have run into. They do a great job depicting how people hated tax collectors. And the kind of life that a typical tax collector could have had. So I, I recommend that. Plow through the first four episodes if that's all you've got time for. Really go watch the whole se series. But first four episodes give you a good example of how tax collectors would have been viewed. Jewish tax collectors would have been viewed by the average Jewish person. So take it away, Ross. Yeah. And I was just going to say with the census, that is like the... Uh, of course, the inevitable one brought up against the idea that it could have been December 25th as the shepherds. But the second most common one is the fact that uh, Joseph and Mary are having to travel for this census, mm. for the, you know, the registration as part of the census. And of course, what's problematic about that is that the text does not say, you know, how close to the census it was when uh, like when the census was issued, at what time of year they left, and what time of year it was when they arrived, how late it was, you know, uh, before Jesus was born after they arrived in Bethlehem. It just says while they were staying, Jesus was born. Yeah. And so we have no idea what kind of uh, time gap we're dealing with here is, but it's also the fact that, you know, there's been suggestions that, you know, the the government wouldn't have made them travel during the rainy season. And of course we have to remember that when Caesar wants his taxes, he doesn't necessarily care about you know, your inconvenience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. 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 They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have mattered. They would mm. not have mattered. 
What about the um, the star? <laughs> Does that help us? <laughs> and are we, la we we both chuckle because I have a feeling we both are aware of the kinds of difficulties that that poses, but. Does, does the star give us any indication? No, it doesn't. There, there have been several attempts at trying to identify what could have been the star of Bethlehem. The three major types of theories we get are that it could have been a nova, which, you know, is, it's like the impression given of a new star, but it's just, you know, when a star's, like, in the process of exploding or has exploded however long ago right. and the lights just now reaching us yeah and the uh the second one is that it could have been like a conjunction of planets although of course the issue that you run into there is how it could have been given the impression of just like a single star that can happen but none of the proposed cases for when it could have been matched that description and uh the other is that it was a comet. Now, of course, comets were called stars just because any luminous body in the heavens would have been called a star mm -hmm. and were called stars. In fact, you know, a lot of people today look at you know, these lights in the sky and think of them as stars until they see that they're blinking and moving. And they're like, oh, that's sure. just a satellite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, the thing is, all of these theories inevitably have to ignore some feature about the text and you know the the biggest one that all of them get hung up on is that the star is described as you know moving in such a way that it leads the uh the magi to jerusalem and then it basically makes a hard left turn to you know bring them south <laughs> yeah. to, to bethlehem right. yeah and it's also a light that's precise enough to point them to a house where they're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. So it's not like saying, just go to Bethlehem and, you know, figure it out from there. Right. It's pointing them to the specific place they need to go. Listen None for the of these... cries of the small child. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And none of these phenomena match that description. Mm -hmm. So the light is either just a a unique provision of God, or it's perhaps an angel, because, you know, the angels were also associated with the stars, even in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and it could have been like an angel giving off light, because that's another thing that angels do in the Bible, and it's actually an interpretation that we see early on, such as John Chrysostom was suggesting that, you know, we're talking about an angel here, and it's possible that Origen may have also made that suggestion. Okay. But no indication about what time of year. Nope. Anything like that. Yeah. Uh, no time of year, no year, even at that. With all the other, uh, all the other uh, points of evidence that I've drawn, where they all seem to intersect is somewhere in either 3 BC or 2 BC. Okay. And if Jesus was born on December 25th, it would have had to have been 3 BC for reasons that I get into in my entry on Herod the Great and you know all the drama surrounding his death. But uh, I think December 25th, 3 BC makes sense out of, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned already, 
especially because you know the it's saying that Jesus was about thirty years old mm-hmm. when he was baptized by John in twenty eight or twenty nine. Yeah, uh, and the thing is, about is not nearly as uh, broad as a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. In that, when it's attached to a chronological it doesn't have as much of a rounding function as it is when you're say talking about counting things yeah like harold hayner again i don't know if i'm saying that name correctly uh, I'm I'm, that's how i have heard his name pronounced yeah okay i'm just gonna say i'm from texas we do not learn how to pronounce things correctly <laughs> yeah. And... yeah yeah you live north of amarillo <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah and uh, Harold Hayner had said that about 30 years could mean like anywhere between 26 and 34 years because it's like a rounding thing. But in every other case, when that word about is used with an age or like a time marker, it doesn't have nearly that kind of rounding function. Yeah. Like the same word is used to talk about uh, Jairus's daughter being about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. But we don't take that to mean that she was somewhere between 8 and 16. Right. I think that just means she was pretty close to 12 years old. And in Luke's account of the transfiguration, he says that um, uh, it happened about eight days later. Yep. Whereas um, uh, Mark and Matthew both indicate that it was a week later. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, about eight days would be, I mean, like, do you count? today is day one and then tomorrow is day two versus tomorrow (laughs) is day one like you get one day difference there yeah and that's another thing that you know creates all kinds of problems with these ancient sources is are they using inclusive reckoning or non-inclusive reckoning as well as you know what kind of calendar they're using yep yep so i think it's fair to say that we can probably be fairly confident about a range of years in which Jesus was born. Mm-hmm. Typically in academic literature, we see something between like four to six BC. Um, you mentioned three BC as a possibility as well. And so like I said, you know, there's there's kind of a range here that we can that we can work with. Not a very mm-hmm. extensive range, you know, right. Not a very extensive range. But um, although we can be confident about a range of years that is really three or four years, um, we have much less confidence about the precise date of December 25th. Right. But we have, but there's also no good reason on the flip side, there's no good reason to argue that December 25th was absolutely a pagan holiday and Christians just took that over. Correct. I'd say we can be more confident at that particular point. I mean, I think December 25th is a reasonable guess and it fits with other things, but there's no way to be certain on this. Yeah. But I think so we it, can be more confident that they did not take over a pagan holiday. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ross, as we wrap up here, is there one? Is there any final uh, final hoorah point you want to bring us home with? Oh, gee, um, had so many different 
final hurrah points for all the stuff I've written on this <laughs> stuff. But uh, I guess it would be to return to that point that one of the reasons why December 25th came to be such a, an important day for early Christians, and there is definitely a lot of complexity with how they ultimately arrived at that conclusion. And I go through that history in my work on why is Christmas on December 25th. Mm-hmm. One of the major driving factors is their desires to uh, correlate creation and redemption or creation and new creation. And this idea that well, the heavens declare the glory of God, that you know, God is constantly witnessing either you know, in anticipation or after the fact to the gospel. And that there are all kinds of ways in which they find that he's done this. And one of the ways they suggested was you know, these, these correlations of Jesus's birth and his conception with these, you know, significant solar dates. Mm-hmm. And they're, even if, you know, regardless of what exactly you think about all the work that went into constructing these, you know, correlations, there is something to learn of, you know, trying to understand these connections between creation and redemption between creation new creation yeah or creation and eschatology as you might say absolutely yeah i think that's a fair point to to really understand kind of the driving force behind all this like you said is to is to express an appreciation of and also a hope in god's continued work mm-hmm. and so for them like like we said earlier it just made sense that god would do things in these ways that were especially meaningful and you know and and would display display his glory like the heavens do yeah. ross i really appreciate your time man we will have uh, i'll have a a link or some way for folks to get to your uh, Substack, so they can subscribe and check all this out. You've gotten some great work that you've alluded to uh, throughout the interview on why Christmas is uh, dated uh, when was Jesus born. Also, Easter. Why are you this way? That's a great title. Um, <laughs> why are you like this? Why are you like this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so Easter. Why are you like this? And um, have you done one on Halloween? Not yet. That's going to be the next one. All right. So After you've I do got these other articles on resurrection. Yeah, you've got uh, you've got about ten and a half months to prepare. <laughs> now I'll um, I'll hit you up before before Halloween next year. But that would be a lot of fun to uh, to dig into some of that stuff. Um, yeah. Sorry, Ross. Appreciate and your time. Of course, man. I'd be happy to come back and talk about Tolkien. Hey, that's all right. We I have I have promised you, and I will deliver. I have promised you. A, a discussion about theological themes in the hobbit and the lord of the rings and so mm-hmm. my homework is set out for me i don't know if i can get away with teaching a sunday morning class on the hobbit and the lord of the rings but that would be a really good excuse for me to be able to just sit and plow through the- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> here, here in the opposite church but ross 
Good to hear from you, man. Good to see you again. And uh, blessings on your uh, upcoming dissertation defense, okay? Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me here. Sure thing. Bye.